News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Jill Bennett sitting in for Simi today, well, for this week. And this is a fascinating discovery. Paleontologists at the Royal Tyrrell Museum in Alberta have found the dining preferences of a juvenile tyrannosaur, and they have found that preference is drumsticks. The discovery was made while a technician was cleaning up a fossil that was originally located back in 2009. According to Dr. Francois Therrien, the curator of dinosaur paleontology, the technician was cleaning up the fossil when he noticed two little toe bones were coming out of the rib cage of the fossil. There was a meeting held. The specimen was studied even further, and that's where they found the leg bones of two small dinosaurs. Joining me now to talk more about this is Dr. Gregory Erickson, professor of anatomy and vertebrate paleobiology at Florida State University. Thank you so much for taking some time this morning. No, thanks for having me, Jill. How significant is this discovery? (laughs) Well, to us, it's really significant. Uh, We've known for quite some time what large tyrannosaurs ate, and in fact, this animal is known as Gorgosaurus, and it was, uh, oh, it got up to, oh, about, uh, oh, I don't know, about 30, or about 10 meters in length. Uh, and we know what they ate. We uh, they pulverized bones and they, of, of very large animals. But we really had no idea what the young tyrannosaurs were eating. And uh, when they were young, they had they were very gracile animals and they had very uh, blade-like teeth, very different from the adults. And so we, it's always been a mystery as to what they were eating. And from what I was reading about this as well, the fact that this was so well preserved, does it also give us some idea that this something must have happened or this this dinosaur died very shortly after eating this meal? Yeah, it's uh, it's an amazing snapshot into uh, not just the moment this animal died, but what it was doing in the weeks up to it. Uh, it uh, obviously it, it uh, whatever it died of, it was buried very quickly, and uh, it's extremely well preserved uh, to the point where the stomach contents are there. And that's that's just about the rarest of the rare. It's uh, very rarely do we find a juvenile tyrannosaur, uh, and to find one with stomach contents, it's, it's kind of like finding the crown jewels in the bottom of a cracker jack box. This is uh, just uh, unheard of. <laughs> and the, the, to even try and wrap your head around this, and I know this is what you study and, and, and you know about these things, but for, for just somebody hearing this story, and when I was reading it, just trying to, fi- to, to think about the fact that this is a tyrannosaur that lived 75 million years ago. Yes, yeah, so that's correct. And uh, it, uh, it's, it's just amazing the insights that have been, you know, we can gain from, uh, you know, from this discovery. Uh, Scientifically, it's a, 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 like I said, it's, we just didn't know what these animals ate. Uh, we, we speculated that they, they probably fed on very small animals uh, simply because if you look at meat-eating dinosaurs like raptors and whatnot, they don't get much over 300 kilograms, and there's just no meat-eaters in between except for these juvenile tyrannosaurs. So we just assumed they were eating some of these smaller prey items out there like this, this animal called cytopes, and uh, the ones that it ate were less than a year old. Um, and there would have uh, these animals are known to have had probably twenty or thirty eggs. There was lots of these things every spring running all over the place, and and these tyrannosaurs were more than willing to snatch them up. And uh, the other thing that was interesting is just how it fed. We would have expected them to eat them in their entirety, um, but that maybe wasn't even physically possible uh, that they could get it down their gullet. And instead, it was plucking the hind legs off, and it's like you know treating them like tur- turkey legs. <laughs> 
<laughs> which is just bizarre when you when you think about that and that that we've been able to get that information and learn that about them so 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 long after the fact when you talk about them the cities did we know much about these these bird-like creatures before or has this kind of helped people understand more about what maybe they were doing well, actually, it's uh, Cydipes is an animal that we know of just from um, you know scraps and that sort of thing. Not really good skeletons. These are some of the best materials <laughs> because they were entombed inside the stomach of this animal. Uh, we know it was uh, probably an omnivorous animal, so an animal that probably ate you know little lizards and stuff, but also plants. Uh, it was it had a um, it had it didn't have teeth. It had beaks, um, and the ones that it consumed were uh, the adults would have been about ten kilograms, and they could have gotten to uh, been about twice that size. Uh, so again, these were young of the year. These animals had, you know, were were had just hatched out, you know, probably a few months earlier. Uh, the tyrannosaur that ate them was uh, only, you know, about uh, four meters long, 300 kilograms, and it was six years of age. So it was mm-hmm. kind of a, a young tyrannosaur meet, meeting up some very young um, cetipedes. So would it be something if we were trying to picture it? Would it be something like an ostrich? Uh, yeah. A little one. <laughs> <laughs> little ostriches, how's that? All right. Actually, a, tur- actually, a turkey's not a bad, a turkey. bad analogy either. Okay, more like a turkey. Um, with the finding of this as well, I mentioned, so this, this was a fossil that was actually discovered in 2009. Is it, was it a stroke of luck that, that now it was found or the technician noticed and, and the discovery was made of the, the well-preserved stomach contents of this fossil? Or, and, and does that mean that could, we could potentially, there could be other ones out there? Oh, absolutely. I've, well, I, I, uh, yeah, they found this animal, and uh, it was in the ground, and they weren't able to dig it out for a year or so later. Uh, and then it takes, often with a big, you know, with a big fossil like this, it takes uh, sometimes years to get them prepared. And, and um, Darren Tankey, the, the technician that found it, is a, a brilliant uh, dinosaur hunter but also preparator and so he picked away at it and picked away at it and he was he astutely picked up on the fact that there's someone else's bones were within the <laughs> within the, the belly cavity of this thing uh and, that, and he slowed down and very meticulously prepped it with the intent of trying to figure out what what you know paleobiologically what that meant and uh he, it was it's just uh so it took years actually to get this thing totally prepared um and uh yeah are there other ones out there like this um Yes. Uh, are they common? No. <laughs> you know, even uh, even with an adult tyrannosaur, we we very rarely find stomach contents. So this is just uh, uh, a remar- just frankly, a really remarkable uh, fossil. And like you mentioned as well, that that the 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 detail that you are able to take from this, the fact that this this tyrannosaur ate the drumsticks, ate the legs of these of the bird creature, not the whole thing. I mean, that level of detail just seems just seems incredible. Yeah, it's. Uh, I, I agree. It's. But it, uh, our work is kind of like forensic science. Just <laughs> going back a lot further, we have we have things like bones and teeth to work with, and and, and clues from those. Uh, and so one of the really interesting pieces of evidence that came uh, to light that uh, Francois Therrien and uh, at the Royal Tyrrell Museum and and Darla Zelensky at uh, at uh, University of Calgary, which really those two headed up the study, they noticed that uh, some of the bones, uh, some of the bones that were further back in the in the um, uh, digestive cavity were were acid etched and so obviously there are two different meals here and uh, it also told us that these animals had really low uh, 
pH, uh, stomach's probably 2.4 pH. Uh, very few animals can digest bones, and these animals were capable of doing it. So basically from that, we were able to deduce that uh, this animal had, had fed two times on these uh, uh, these poor uh, hapless uh, citipedes, and the feeding events were pro- were probably a week or more apart. And uh, and again, this animal is selectively just going after the best parts, the you know the legs and base of the tail, probably the guts as well. Uh, a lot of a lot of predators will do that. Was the go after the good stuff as soon as they they get a kill, hmm. pass I- on everything else. Hmm. And and one other question about this, did it also show us too how Tyrannosaurus, how their diet changed and, and how they kind of adapted? Oh, yes. So the, yeah, the, it shows us these, these young Tyrannosaurus were capable of uh, feeding upon uh, small prey that there's no way a large uh, full-grown Gorgosaurus could, could have uh, run down one of these citipedes. But uh, their young could, these young Tyrannosaurus could, and so they basically were filling this ecological gap this, uh, as to who, who, who is feeding on or who is filling in the predatory gap between about 300 kilograms and, and uh, you know, th- uh, 3,000 kilograms. And so uh, a lot of animals do this, though. Uh, crocodiles do it, Komodo dragons, where they'll start off eating, you know, small prey items and then work their way up to big game, so to speak. And uh, that, that's clearly what's happening here. Uh, it's, but we, you know, we speculated this occurred, but we didn't have any evidence. So it's, you know, we have some empirical evidence here. So actually we have some science. It is a fascinating discovery and story. Dr. Erickson, we'll leave it there for this morning. But thank you so much for joining us. Oh, great. Well, thank you so much for having me. That is Dr. Gregory Erickson, Professor of Anatomy and Vertebrate Paleobiology at Florida State University, also a co-author of this study. This is Mornings with Simi. Let's check in with show contributor Scott Shantz. Good morning to you. Hi, Jill. How are you? Very well. Yourself? Pretty good. Yeah. Did you have a good weekend? Uh, yeah. Had a good weekend. You? Uh, it was pretty good. It was pretty wet. Uh, I live in North Van, and every I know everybody experienced atmospheric river in the mm-hmm. lower mainland because it was just nonstop. Uh, we had so much rain that, you know, sometimes it overfills the like the water turns brown, right? Because right. Was, and we had that, so you know, my wife and kids were a little bit sort of panicked or whatever, and had to like huh. run it a while until that kind of goes away. But yeah, like serious rainy conditions over the weekend, and I was downtown uh, doing some errands and running around and stuff. And as happens every time at this year. Uh, every year at this time of year, the people bring out their umbrellas and don't know how to use them. And I feel like we talk about this all the time, but it bears repeating. How do you properly use and carry an umbrella in the city of Vancouver? And I think this needs to be addressed. <laughs> so what I did, right. Jill, was I, I went to several um, like umbrella etiquette websites. Like I researched this from several different points of view and compiled all that information uh, into a list of like the most important and most common uh, rules for umbrellaing because, you know, I was walking under the awning and there's a person under there with an umbrella and they're not paying attention and they're moving it around and mm-hmm. stabbing a kid in the eye. It's mm-hmm. mayhem, right? So the first and most important rule, and this was number one on every list that I checked, uh, make sure that you are carrying an appropriate sized 
umbrella. And this is not this. I didn't think that this was going to be the first rule, but they say like if you're just one person, don't have a golf umbrella right. on the sidewalk. Yes, I you saw know? someone with a golf umbrella downtown I mean, the other day. Yeah, yes. sure. You would love to have <laughs> a little bit of uh, extra room and periphery to make sure you're extra. You know, like there's definitely no way the rain's going to get on you. But it's not considerate of other people. We all True. just if we all just carry the one person size umbrella, we'll all be fine. So make sure you have the right size of umbrella. Uh, number two, and this one is good. When two people are heading towards each other, walking towards each other, it is expected that whoever is the taller of the two people raises their umbrella so that the shorter person can pass under. That makes sense. It does. But the number of people that don't do that, <laughs> I'm like, uh, okay, so you kind of got to lean around you and there's like a crowd here. And that's when someone gets hit with the outside of the umbrella because you're kind of moving. Just lift it up. You're still mm-hmm. underneath it. You're mm-hmm. still going to stay dry. So the taller person is supposed to raise their umbrella. Uh, we talked about this. I mentioned this, that if you're under an awning, don't. if you have an umbrella, you can't be under the awning. That's for right. the people that don't have umbrellas. It's rare that I carry one. You know, they often get taken in my house and someone else is using them. And it just drives me absolutely nuts when I'm walking and there's a person with an umbrella under the awning. What are you doing? It's so frustrating, <laughs> right? You have an umbrella, leave the awning for the people that don't have the umbrellas. Yeah. And yeah. then uh, fourth rule, uh, Jill, leave your umbrella at the door, right? Shake it off outside. When you come into any place, you're supposed to leave it at the door. And then when you leave that place, you want to make sure that you take the umbrella that you came in with. Okay, none of this umbrella exchange, people taking umbrellas that are nicer than the ones that they left behind. We all see what you're doing. We know what you're doing. You're not fooling anyone. Take the umbrella you came in with. Which I think of all of these, they all make perfect sense. But that might be the one, even if somebody has very good umbrella etiquette, that that you might be reluctant to leave it at the door for exactly that reason. Maybe it's a black umbrella. There's a dozen of them. You're not sure it's yours when you take it, or you're afraid somebody's going to take yours, whether intentionally or not. Yes. And uh, for that reason, you should put an Apple AirTag on your umbrella, and then you can like (laughs) chase the person down and find them, and then you can make sure that they're obeying all of these umbrella rules, Jill. I'm I'm on a mission to civilize. That's what I'm doing here. Good luck to you, Scott, because like you said, every year, and it's Vancouver, there's a lot of rain in Metro Vancouver. You'd think that this would be something that we would have figured out because of that, right? You would think. Unfortunately not. So there you go. The top four umbrella rules that you need to take with you because there is more rain in the forecast, obviously, uh, this week and in coming months. Of course there will be. All right, Scott. Uh, Quick question. Umbrella when it's snowing? Yes or no? Uh, No. Thank you. Yeah. All right. All right. That is our show contributor, Scott Schantz. If you want to join that conversation, if you have a, a little peeve when it comes to how people use their umbrellas, by all means, give us a call on the buzz line 604-331-BUZZ. This is Mornings with Simi. 637 on this Monday. Let's check in now with the Vancouver Suns, Von Palmer. Good morning to you. And good morning, Jill. So much to talk about today as we get into the work week and starting with a case that you and I talked about this and the criticism of a sentencing in a voyeur case. You know... This is a very important thing, what's happened here, because uh, it started with a court decision that a lot of people found questionable. And this is a case where a guy uh, had installed a a camera, a surveillance camera in a washroom in his house and and was using it to uh, capture images of a young woman who was a student living in his house 
the judge in that case and people have been following it know that the judge uh, gave the uh, person found guilty in the case probation and said to effect uh, to justify the relatively late sentence for something that just not only appalled but revolted many people uh, said well you know there was a deficit of intimacy in his marriage hmm. I, I you know where these things come from, I don't know. But the, the reason that case has now uh, gained, I think, some momentum as a subject of comment is that Premier David Eby, on Friday, supported the comments, the criticisms of the Attorney General, Nikki Sharma, in that case, uh, linked it to another case, and said he's very concerned about victim shaming and female, sorry, victim blaming and female shaming in the court system, E.B. says he thinks it's corrosive to public support for the justice system, and he agrees with the Attorney General that there needs to be better education of judges, and he also expressed concern that it will make it harder for women to come forward with complaints because of their fear about the way they're going to be treated in the justice system. So uh, the premier, it wasn't a jealous speech that the premier gave. It was uh, a news conference on another subject on Friday, but he got asked about this, and he came out with some very strong comments of support for his attorney general and basically agreed with her that those two cases, uh, the other one is the one where the defense lawyer uh, okay, so this is a 13-year-old who was murdered, um, and the defense lawyer argued uh, that, well, she wasn't as innocent as the Crown made out. Again, that stuff, I have shocked and appalled people. So, I, you know, it's, it's interesting how the generally, as you know, Jill, in our system, uh, attorneys, general, premiers are reluctant to get involved in commenting on specific court cases, but in this case... They are to make the larger point, as the premier put it, that confidence in the justice system is undermined when they see victims blamed and women shamed in court cases. And when we talked about this before, Vaughn, you, you know that when the Attorney General, when Nikki Sharma made these comments, which I think most people, if you'd read the case and seen that sentencing, going back to the Voyeur case, a lot of other people had similar questions yeah. about the judge's words and agreed with what Nikki Sharma said. Yeah. But as expected, the Bar Association was critical, saying that that undermined confidence or could undermine confidence in the justice yeah. system. But it, I mean, it's it's actually nice, I think, to see the premier coming out and saying uh, what many people are saying is that actually it's sentences like that that undermine yes. confidence. Yeah, I mean, that you're right, is the central point in the premier's follow up comments in this case. Yes, the Bar Association said you mustn't criticize judges because if you criticize judges, you undermine confidence in the justice system. And the premier is effectively saying, no, I'll tell you what undermines confidence in the justice system. It's when people see court proceedings that shame women and blame victims. And again, 
you know, I I go back to David Eby as a civil libertarian, as seen as, uh, you know, that's where he comes from. But he is becoming, I think it's one of the significant evolution in David Eby as premier. We saw it on bail reform in the justice system and violent repeat offenders. You're now seeing it in this case where he's saying, uh, no, I, I think the justice system needs to be reformed. I think uh, there needs to be reforms there. Better training for judges. Now, I would note that the premier said in passing that the chief justice of the provincial court, so most judges are federally appointed, but not provincial court. Melissa Gillespie is, he says, the chief justice of the provincial court is upgrading tra uh, training for judges. And the premier says he has confidence in her as he also has 100% confidence in Nikki Sharma and says she's on the right track in raising these issues publicly and essentially coming out defending women and calling for, um, well, a more enlightened uh, judiciary on some cases. I think that's fair to say. Uh, and I, I think this one is, um, it's, it's opened up an area of debate because I can't think of a time in the past where we had a premier and an attorney general speaking effectively with one voice in implied criticism of judges and the judicial system. And when you talk about the judicial training as well, I think that was also something that Nikki Sharma uh, talked about or mentioned that wasn't there supposed to be a plan and that this yeah. training was already supposed to be taking place or some, <clears throat> some judges yeah. should have already had it. Yeah, she did say that. Uh, now, you know, I guess you'd say the premier... Uh, expanded a little bit on our comments when he said, look, we already have a program in place in the provincial court. And look, it is not the province's government job to either appoint Supreme Court judges or to uh, send them to retraining. That's up to the federal government. But, you know, I, I think in this case, you've had um, the premier and the attorney general are not backing down on their criticisms in these two cases. And, Jill, I would agree with what you said, that uh, I think they are on the same page as the public on this. Uh, the legal judicial establishment may feel, may say, may maintain their messaging that you don't criticize judges and that circumstances alter cases, and if you don't like the verdict, go to the Court of Appeal, uh, the Premier and the Attorney General in this case are speaking to a broader public. And uh, yes, they have to be careful, but I do think that they are speaking for a broader public as well, because we know in our business from the reporting on these two cases, I think the public was shocked and appalled. I think they didn't think that sort of thing went on in our court system anymore. Continuing now with the Vancouver Suns, Vaughn Palmer. And Vaughn, we didn't get to this on Friday, but there has been a lot of talk about emissions and the cap on oil and gas and some criticism of that. Yes, there has been some criticism and the federal government got a statement of support. So Thursday, Ottawa announces... Uh, it's new targets, new regimen for the oil and gas sector, reducing emissions, changing the technology, providing incentives to reduce emissions. But 
some fairly aggressive targets, although the federal government said, well, we haven't gone as far as we were originally planning to do. And the pushback has been very, very strong from the industry, saying it'll have a huge impact on the ability of the industry to produce uh, important resources, uh, the economy, jobs, and some early indications, Jill, you're going to get a court battle from Alberta, which already won an important case on this issue this year, and Saskatchewan. Uh, against that backdrop, well, we got a statement from George Heyman, the provincial minister for the environment and climate change strategy, and he welcomed the changes. He says that they're important, that we need to do it, that every sector of the economy has to contribute to reducing emissions, and he says that, look, uh, the oil and gas industry is uh, responsible for 20% of BC's emissions, and he says the British Columbia government nevertheless supports these. He also claims that BC is ahead of Ottawa anyway. The province already has a plan to reduce emissions in that sector, and, and in BC, Jill, it's mostly natural gas, as you know. We don't really have a lot of oil production. So, you know, again, we see that on climate on fighting climate change, the BC NDP government is pretty much four square behind Ottawa on things. Uh, once in a while, you get a little bit of criticism. There certainly was of the one-sidedness of the federal incentives to Atlantic Canada on home heating. But for the most part, uh, federal liberal government's best friend on Climate action remains uh, the B.C. provincial government. Which I, I find interesting, not surprising at all, but also interesting when you look at some of the newer polls and the numbers, and you mentioned the people upset about the, the, the home heating yeah. credit and the fact that it left B.C. out, basically left it out completely. But it does seem to be changing. If you asked people 10, 15 years ago their thoughts on the carbon tax, it seemed like there was a lot more support than there is today and that yeah. people are realizing, and even with numbers, like you said, George Heyman saying 20% of BC's emissions from this industry, sure, that sounds like a lot, but not when you look at BC's total emissions, maybe compared to some other places. Yeah, Jill, I agree with what you just said. I would say one of the biggest changes in the last two or three years around the issue of climate change has been the deterioration of support in British Columbia for climate action. Now, the province had a carbon tax before the rest of the country, and it stuck with the carbon tax uh, from 2008 onward. It fought a provincial election on the carbon tax where the NDP opposed the carbon tax, made it stick. And from then on, it was generally all the parties in the BC legislature, because the Greens were there as well, uh, supported uh, climate action and the carbon tax as a way to uh, provide an incentive or a disincentive on emissions. So you're right. Uh, however, you know, we went through, uh, what, uh, 2009 election was where we had the fight over the carbon tax and the government that brought it in won the election and the NDP lost. Um, the 2013 and 2017 elections and 2020 elections, this was not a big issue. It just, it didn't come up. Uh, yes, uh, one of those campaigns, a conservative party was going to get rid of the carbon tax, but they didn't do very well in the election. So we kind of thought it was a dead issue. I guess the message here is there are no settled issues, <laughs> especially in BC politics and Canadian politics as well. And you're right, what's happened now is that 
a couple of the opposition parties, the BC Conservatives and BC United, are both, uh, well, one is talking about getting rid of the carbon tax, that's the Conservatives, and the other one is talking about capping it and tweaking it in other ways, that's BC United, but they reflect a shift in the public mood around the price we're paying to fight climate change when we are such a small part of global emissions. It is 0.19 of a percentage point. I think, so that's 19 one hundredths of a percentage point is our emissions. And I guess when a British Columbian looks at the gas bill, what they're paying, are they paying on home heating oil? Uh, you're, they're going, what am I paying for? And what am I getting here? We're getting uh, wildfires. We're getting atmospheric rivers. We're getting floods because what the rest of the world is doing. We, we don't really have the ability by what we do here and what we pay here to stop any of that. And I think, yeah, people are worried about the cost of living and what they're paying and other taxes are going. I don't know if we need to be leading the world on this anymore. Exactly. On that note, Vaughn, let's leave that there and uh, I will check in with you again tomorrow. Bye-bye, Joe. That is Vaughn Palmer with uh, his view from Victoria. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, imagine rowing 5,000 kilometers across the Atlantic to raise money for ocean conservation. That is exactly what four marine scientists are going to be doing. And one of those scientists is joining me on the line now. Lauren Shea is a master's student at the UBC Institute for Oceans and Fisheries. Lauren, thank you so much for taking some time this morning. Thanks for having me. This is uh, sounds like such a daunting row and uh, th- that's coming up. How did you get involved or how did this all come about? Yeah, so I have we've been preparing for this for the last three years, but it actually all started when I, I've been working on sailboats for the last few years. And I was based in Antigua, which is actually where this race, the world's toughest row, finishes. And I was lucky to see the race finish in both 2020 and 2021. And the the first time I saw it finish, I was like, wow, that's crazy. I don't know why, how or how people do that. And then the second time I saw it finish, for some reason, it seemed less crazy. And I texted some friends to see if they wanted to do it with me. And here we are at the start line now. (laughs) So so you've gone from that's that's nuts. So why would anyone do that to here you are now? You're going to be uh, in that boat. So tell me a little bit. Yeah. Tell me a bit about the boat and how do you prepare for something like this? Yeah, so the boat is a 28-foot ocean rowing boat. It's um, it's pretty it's pretty advanced for for its small size. It has two cabins, one on either end, on the bow and the stern, which are just about big enough for a person to lay down um, and sleep in and store all of your your clothes in. And then in between those two cabins, we have the rowing deck, which is where there are three rowing stations um, where people can be rowing because that's the only way, that's our only means of propulsion. 
Um, and we usually only have two people on deck rowing at a time. And we've actually been yeah, preparing for this race for the last three years. We had no idea where to where to start. So we kind of spent the first year building our campaign, figuring out what we wanted to do with it and, and trying to see how you even purchase an ocean rowing boat. And then um, figured out how, how to get a used boat from a team who had, had rowed her before and um, and then since then have been training on the boat, on the water as much as we could, as well as lots of physical training and, and uh, mental resilience training back home because we're all kind of spread across North America. How long will you be at sea rowing? We'll be rowing for roughly um, 40 to 55 days. There, it's a, it's a bit, um, it's a bit of a big window, and that's just because it depends a lot on the weather that we get. If we have fair winds and following seas the whole way across, which is every sailor's dream who's making this crossing, um, then we're looking at closer to six weeks. If we have less wind or we have wind in the wrong direction, then it might take us a little bit longer. And how do you work it then with the rest of the crew as far as sleeping and eating and and rowing and, and getting all of that done? Yeah, so we are on a constant watch rotation. So at no point is the do we stop rowing or um, or anchor the boat. Obviously, we're going to be in really deep water, far away from anything for the whole way. So we um, switch off two hours on and two hours off from the point that we leave La Gomera uh, on Wednesday until we reach Antigua, hopefully by the end of January. So you're when you're on deck rowing, that's your two-hour shift, and then you have two hours off when someone switches in for you um, to sleep or eat or use the bathroom or do whatever you need to do before before your next shift two hours later. Hmm. And I understand, well, you'll be taking everything you need on the journey. What about food? What does the, the menu look like? <laughs> the menu uh, looks like a lot of dehydrated kind of like backpackers camping meals um, that we can rehydrate using um, just using water that we make with our desalinator on board, um, which takes seawater and turns that into fresh water. Um, and then we also have lots of snacks. So we actually have 4,000 calories worth of food per person per day um, for up to 55 days at sea. So honestly, the entire boat is mostly made up of, of food. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Is there a support crew? You mentioned the weather and how the weather can turn so quickly. Uh, is there a support crew that's there in case uh, something goes wrong? No, so it's an unsupported race. Um, so each boat, as soon as we leave shore, we, you know, we're not allowed to receive like physical support. So there's no boat following us um, to help us when we need it. We have satellite phones. So if we need, um, if we need assistance over the phone, like from a doctor, or um, we can't quite figure out how to fix an issue on board with something like in the electrical system, we can we can call out and try to. Um, get someone on the phone who can help us, but that's that's the only support we can have. Besides that, it's it's just us out there. And I know you said you've been preparing for for years, for a few years, and and doing all of this training. Do you feel ready, or or, or is there ever a point where you actually would feel ready, completely ready for something like this? <laughs> 
Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, I think we're feeling really ready. We're, we're definitely very excited to get off the dock. It's We've now been in La Gomera for nearly two weeks. So, you know, the dock is just buzzing. Everyone just wants to get offshore. Everyone's doing their last minute, you know, checks. And yeah, there's a, there's a lot of excitement here right now. But um, there's always a degree of uncertainty of like, oh, I don't know. It's, you know, it's a little bit scary. You don't know exactly what you're going to get. But I guess that's part of the adventure and, and the reason, you know, part of part of why you do this is to kind of see what you can do and be exposed to all these different conditions. So, but we're excited to get going and, and feeling good. How many boats are participating? Do you know? There's 38 boats this year. Hmm. And will you see them then after you leave or once you're out on the open water, that's everybody rows and that's it? Yeah, after day one, it's pretty unlikely that we'll see another rowing boat. It, it's very possible that we'll see, you know, maybe like a sailing yacht or a, or a big cargo ship. But the rowing boats are so low to the water, like only about a meter tall. Mm. Um, so and a lot of the times we're going to have waves that are bigger than a meter. So even if they were, you know, not that far away, it'd be really hard to see them just because we're so low in the water. And uh, how can people follow along? And again, I know you're raising money, raising half a million dollars for oceans and sustainability. How can people follow along once you start rowing on the 13th? Yeah, so it, it people can check out our website at saltyscience.org. And we also um, we have a social media team that will be taking photos that we send them from offshore and posting, you know, updates of how we're doing. Um, and our Instagram handle is at saltyscience.rowing. So that's a great way to kind of follow along with our, our journey. And we're working really hard to um, try to get every mile of the journey sponsored. So it takes, it's 3,000 miles to get across the Atlantic. And if we could um, get every one of those miles sponsored, that would be, you know, $300,000 that could immediately go to our, the organizations we're raising money for. So that's a really great way to, to help support us. It is an amazing adventure, and I know so many people will be following along and supporting you all the whole way. Lauren, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Thanks so much for having me. That is Lauren Shea, master's student at the UBC Institute for Oceans and Fisheries, and again, part of that 5,000-kilometer row. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, let's check back in with show contributor Scott Shantz. Good morning again. Hi, how's it going, Jill? Very well. We uh, talked a bit about this with Kareem Gouda shopping and uh, a lot of people saying that the holidays have kind of crept up on them this year. Yeah, absolutely. Are you are you ready? No. Like, how ready do you feel for this? 80%? Oh, I think 80% is really good, okay. Jill. All Christmas right. is two weeks today. If you're at 80%, <laughs> you're in good shape. All right, I feel better then. Oh, yeah. I mean, like, uh, we have a Christmas tree up. That's a good start. But other go. than that, I mean, I have I have no idea what is even <laughs> happening. And you can kind of see it, right? When you go out and uh, do some walk. I mean, we're downtown. So if you're like walking downtown after after work and stuff, you can tell that there's this energy and people mm-hmm. are kind of in a rush and it's busier than normal. And it's like this every year. So we shouldn't be surprised when this happens, but it just does seem to creep up and people get a little agitated, you know, because yes. it takes longer to get everywhere. And then 
like the weather, like we were talking about. So traffic is always busier and people are driving slow. It's just mayhem, right? And yes. as a result of that, customers are, yeah, like at this time of year, shop owners and retailers and stuff, they always say that customers get a little crankier, even though they're, you know, not supposed to be. They're supposed to be happier. But yeah, and like now we have to deal with that. Uh, so I spoke with John Clarides. He is the owner of Marquee Wines in downtown there in the West End. He's also a member of the Save Our Streets Coalition, so a bunch of business owners that like deal with this type of thing. And I asked him if like if, if he has actually seen this phenomenon of people getting crankier uh, around the holidays. Well, really, in my store, we're pretty good. They're pretty pretty happy coming in for for obvious reasons. But in in speaking with uh, some some other retailers, um, everybody seems to be a little bit afraid. This is a difficult time of the year. Uh, well, the things that have been happening to retailers over the last couple of years, uh, specifically with um, shoplifting and, and breaking windows, they're just they're just at that breaking level, and they just need a little bit of a break. Customers to be a little bit nicer to them, and uh, just to get them through this uh, this holiday season. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it feels like we used to have this uh, kind of mantra where, you know, the, the cliched saying was, oh, the customer is always right. Uh, and we, you know, we're in the service industry and we're here to um, make your day better by providing great service. And you come in and to, and to do all of that. And it kind of feels like uh, customers have taken advantage of that. Would you agree with that? Yeah, in some cases, yeah. You know, they take whatever whatever difficulties they're having, either in life or in their office, and they're bringing it to bringing it to us uh, at the at the service level, and that's just not right. So sometimes you just have to hold your breath and uh, just you know, wait your turn. And, you know, it's not our fault. We right. do the best we can for you. Yeah, I've Absolutely. sort of, I've been saying that uh, on weekends when I host the weekend morning show here that, you know, it's it's no one's fault that it's extra busy out there and that there's going to be extra traffic. You just kind of have to expect that at this time of year. But you combine that with, like you say, the year, last couple of years that we've had and people's patience is shorter than it is because everyone is so busy and, you know, it all sort of snowballs and, and compounds into, into this scenario. So how do business owners, um, how do you deal with that when you get a customer that comes in and you can clearly tell that they're frustrated and they're um, combative and, you know, maybe they're just looking for an argument. What does a business owner do oh, in those situations? You know, I've been, I've, I, I, I've been at this game, for me personally, I've been at this game for a long time, almost 40 years. And I always try to, to diffuse it with good humor, maybe a hockey score, something that's funny that's happened in the news, and I'll just pick it out of, pick it out of the air and uh, try to, try to uh, service them or, you know, kill them with kindness. It usually pretty work. It works very, very well. Uh, helping them out to the car, uh, if they have their kids with them or something, just, you know, talking to their kids or, you know, sometimes if, if they come in my store, I'll give the kid a ride on the, uh, on our hand cart, and zoom them around the store. That type of stuff diffuses the situation a lot. Yeah. Helps a lot. Yeah, yeah. I find that too. I was going to say, it's like the kill them with kindness thing, you know? And I also find that doing a nice thing like that, especially at the holidays, it makes you feel good, right? And so you exactly. kind of get this like yep. double-edged benefit. And, you know, I sometimes take a, a small sort of consolation prize in that it's like, oh, that person realizes that they were kind of being a little bit jerky. And then they, you know, that you can sort of see that they're, they're like humbled a bit, you know? 
Exactly. Listen, you know, we can't save the world, but we can save it one person at a time. So if if that works, if that helps someone, then, then it'd go for it. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, is there anything that you would like to say uh, to customers who are venturing out? You know, it's two weeks to Christmas. Christmas is two weeks today, and uh, a lot of people getting their last-minute sort of shopping done and obviously going uh, to get wine and, and alcohol for all the festivities and stuff. Uh, what would you say? What would your message be to people who are venturing out over the next two weeks? You know what? Have, have a great holiday season. Just be patient. Traffic's crazy out there. And uh, enjoy the holidays uh, with your friends and family and uh, be the best person that you can. Fantastic. John Claritas, he is the owner of Marquis Wines in the West End, uh, downtown Vancouver. Thanks so much for your time and uh, happy holidays to you as well. Uh, great. Thank you, too. Two weeks, Jill, to Two not be a today. jerk. Two weeks to not be a jerk. <laughs> All right. Can do it. And, and, and maybe extend that as well. Yeah. To, yeah. Yes. Yeah. All yeah. right. Uh, good good information. Good uh, good reminder for people there. Scott, thank you. You got it. That is show contributor Scott Chance. Again, two weeks today until Christmas. This is Mornings with Simi. Jill Bennett sitting in for Simi Sarah. Well, we have been talking about the ongoing strike. This has had an impact on sugar production, specifically at the Rogers Sugar Refinery in Vancouver. We've talked about the impact on bakers and other businesses that need sugar for their business. But what about the impact on hummingbirds? Joining me now to talk more about this is Alison Moran, a hummingbird expert, also head of the Humming Bird Project with Rocky Point Bird Observatory. Allison, thank you so much for making some time today. Well, thank you for inviting me. It's not something I think that uh, that was top of mind or has been top of mind for a lot of people, but uh, is the, the sugar shortage having an impact or could it potentially have an impact on uh, the food that is needed for hummingbirds? Potentially. You see, the thing is, that the Anna's hummingbirds who are with us at the moment are just setting up to breed right now. And they're making their nesting decisions on the available resources. And of course, sugar is part of the diet along with bugs. And the hummingbirds evolved with plants that provided sucrose and what we call white sugar. And so other kinds of sugar can be toxic for them, like uh brown sugar will give them iron poisoning. And so basically, uh, you know, if we're worried about a seven or or eight months shortage, you know, just getting through the winter until there's more plants and things available during this breeding time, we might want to conserve our white sugar for the hummingbirds and, uh, you know, use alternative sources of sugar for our baking. You know, get a little creative in the kitchen. Sorry, so so there is no other uh, substitute or as far as for people, if they're feeding hummingbirds and and making the hummingbird food, it can only be the white sugar? White sugar only, yeah. And and, uh, whereas we can eat other sugars. I mean, it's just like honey, you know, and brown sugar and those kind of things are just really not good for the for the hummingbirds at all. And so it'd be better not to feed than to give them the wrong sources. And if, if I can just say, the recipe you want to use is on your hand. Your thumb would be the sugar, one part sugar, and then four parts water. And you want to keep it dilute. So just 
my advice is just to use what you need. So make up a lot, put it in the fridge, and then only put what you're using out so you can keep that feeder fresh. Because every time they stick their tongues in, of course, they're inoculating the fluid with bacteria. Mm. So if you only just put a little bit in and then clean it all the time, you don't go through your reserve that quickly, if you see what I mean. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for, for sure. How often, when you say clean all the time, uh, how often if people, because so many people do have these feeders, and we certainly mm-hmm. found out more about that when we had freezing temperatures uh, last year yeah. and, and people getting creative trying to keep it thawed. Uh, how often should you be cleaning it? Well, less often in the winter time because the bacteria grow slower. So you can you can get up to a week. But when it's warmer weather, you want to be doing it every couple of days because basically the bacteria is going to eat all your sugar. So uh, you know it's it's just better to you know consider once a week at at minimum and a good clean. You know just get it nice nice and clean. That makes a difference. You mentioned that this is the time of year as well that the Anna's hummingbirds, which people will be familiar with, are nesting. How important is it if you are somebody, because somebody might think, oh, well, if there's a, I don't have white sugar, there's a shortage, I'll just take the feeder down for now and, and deal with it when, when there's sugar back in full supply. But how important is it that feeders stay up, that if, if the hummingbirds have become accustomed to that or have been using the feeders, uh, that they need to stay in the same spot? Okay, well, if all your neighbors have one, you're fine. You know, if you're the only supply and they've made their nesting decisions on you and there's no other feeders around, that's far more critical. So if it's if you're just one person and say that, you know, other people in your condo have feeders up, that's not going to be a big problem. It's just if you are, you know, something that they truly depend upon alone, that's when it gets more extreme. So, you know, you have to gauge where you are on that continuum. Right. Okay. Um, and and you mentioned as well uh, this uh, part of the year with nesting. Uh, is, is there anything else people should be doing as far as making sure that uh, the hummingbirds have the best chance or that, uh, that they're given everything that they need? Well, they're going to catch all the bugs they need and they need to eat bugs all the time. But what you can do is make sure that feeder is fluid so you you mentioned warming you can get little warmers keep the if there's going to be snow make sure that the um feet are sheltered so it doesn't get covered in snow and then they can't access it keep a check that it's not getting concentrated those heaters will concentrate it and so will freezing because freezing pulls the ice and then, then you end up with syrup and if there's no free water around for them to dilute it with you have a problem so Making sure your feeder's clean, making sure it's fluid, making sure you have fresh stuff out there. That's the best thing that we can do. Also keeping your your feeder either really close to the house or in the summer, you know, far away. Because you don't want them banging into windows, but they'll slow down to the feeder. So if you have it really close, not in takeoff range so that they can just bang into it. Because windows can be quite a hazard for the birds. All right. And how is, do we, sorry, do we know how the population is doing? Is it a healthy population right now? The Anna's is. The Rufus is not. The ones that come up from Mexico are not doing well at all. But the Anna's, which we have here in the winter, are doing well, partly because we supplement their food and we provide them with, um, you know, the, the conditions that they need. We have 
good plants in our gardens that go all winter. You know, we're, we're a really good place. They like to be around humans. The rufous, on the other hand, are not doing well. And, and why is the other, why is that one not doing well? They tend to be farther away from humans and they have to migrate and they migrate in early spring. And, and part of the reasons they aren't doing well is because of agriculture and loss of insects um, through use of pesticides and so on. Those are major reasons. Loss of habitat as well. All right. Well, it's uh, good advice and uh, some tips there if people do have those feeders and want to make sure that they're keeping them out and uh, a healthy way for the Anna's hummingbirds. Allison, thank you so much for joining us. Appreciate your time this morning. Thank you very much for calling me. That is Allison Moran, a hummingbird expert, also head of the Hummingbird Project with the Rocky Point Bird Observatory. This is Mornings with Simi. Jill Bennett sitting in for Simi, Sarah. Well, today will be this evening. It will be the first park board meeting since the announcement from Vancouver's mayor that he would like to see the park board, the elected park board taken in becoming a more of a committee of the city rather than a freestanding park board. Certainly there has been plenty of reaction to that announcement and at that meeting this evening there will be several former park board commissioners and chairs all who have signed a petition signed on to a news release speaking out against the demise of the park board saying instead it should stay. Well joining me now is Ian Robertson a former park board commissioner. Ian thank you so much for taking some time this morning. Thanks for inviting me, Jill. Uh, why, do you, why are you opposed to this and why would you like to see the park board stay? Well, first of all, uh, what kind of got me uh, interested in this particular initiative is that uh, the mayor has absolutely no mandate from the voters to take this decision and it's completely undemocratic. Uh, I was on the park board for six years and I saw firsthand where an experienced, well-governed and funded a park board can have a, a very real difference on uh, the lives of Vancouverites and their parks and recreation services. But what do you think the park board itself, having the elected board, what could it do differently than, say, having a committee, having a board under the umbrella of council? I think it all comes down to focus, uh, Jill. Uh, right now, I mean, any city council has got their hands full looking at other initiatives such as public safety, housing, city regulations, and there are so many uh, details that I think will get lost and initiatives that will get lost as it comes under the fold of uh, mayor and council. And uh, as I said, uh, the mayor does not have any mandate from the voters to do this. In fact, he's, he's flip-flopped on this. In the beginning of the election, he said he would abolish it. And then he stepped back and said, oh, no, I believe in a in strong independent park board. And now that he's gotten in, he said, oh, I'm going to take it away. And I, I don't think he has the mandate from the voters to make a very significant decision of this nature. If there was a referendum or if it was put to the voters and he got that mandate, would, it, would you be OK with it then? I think that's a more fair way. But I think uh, before we get there, uh, we need to stand up and, uh, and, and voice our concern and, and tell the voters about what the impact will be. Jill, I'll go back to, look, I can only speak from experience. I was a park commissioner and I was chair of the park board uh, during the windstorms of Stanley Park. And I'm absolutely convinced that because of a strong independent park board, uh, the board was successful in raising the millions of dollars that we did 
to help with the restoration of Stanley Park. And if that had been folded under city council, it would not have gotten that kind of support. And I feel very strongly about that. Other cities do it, though, without having a separate freestanding board. It is part of their civic councils. So what makes Vancouver so different, though, that it's the only city that has this or needs to have this? Well, I think it's a positive. Uh, Again, when I was a commissioner and chair, I'd hear from other cities how they looked at the model that Vancouver had and, and wish they had it. And I think it's something that we've had for over 100 years, and it's not time to get rid of it. Uh, and I think we should celebrate it. It's no surprise that Vancouver is is admired by cities across the country and, and around the world for its beautiful parks and beaches, uh, the, the local community flavor uh, that our community centers bring. Uh, each community center is responsible for their programming. And again, I think under uh, when it's if it's folded under mayor and council, each community center is going to lose their individuality. And I think that is something that the voters really need to think about. Didn't they kind of already lose that, though, even under the park board when they used to be very individual, even as far as fundraising and, and how they ran their programs to when it became the card, the, the access card, the universal card for all of the, the community centers? Because when that happened, many of them were very, really upset about that. Yeah, there's 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 uh, there's uh, strengths and then there's opportunities and challenges that brings. But I think overall, the residents of Vancouver are well served uh, by having a local community board uh, uh, providing oversight in the community centers and uh, providing uh, providing specific direction on the kinds of programs that those uh, that those centers want. Uh, the mayor said he was on this program and he said that he didn't actually flip flop. He said, yes, he originally ran saying he would get rid of the park board, then uh, decided, no, we will keep it. But he said after that, he it came to his attention that the park board was broken. It was a dysfunctional board and he didn't see any way to fix it, to make it that it would be cost effective and that it was actually doing a job that couldn't be done under council. So how do you respond to that, to him saying that it was just too broken? Well, you know, again, I think that uh, if you were to roll back the... Uh, the commentary on that, I think everyone took uh, the mayor's comments that he believed in a strong independent park board and would keep it. And, you know, uh, Jill, he's not the only one. Uh, Councillor Mike Klassen uh, years ago uh, spoke about having the value of a strong independent park board. And now I'm sure he'll follow uh, mayor's, Mayor Sims' uh, direction and will vote against a strong independent park board. Now, I'll be the first to admit that there's been challenges with the governance uh, of previous boards. And, uh, and, but, you know, that's what happens when you get, uh, when you get a, a elected board by the people. There's going to be challenges. But I think if you, if you recruit strong, uh, experienced people uh, to run uh, and you fund the park board to where it needs to be, uh, everything works very, very well. And I'm concerned that in folding it under mayor and council, uh, it's going to lose a focus. Uh, I know that uh, many former commissioners and chairs will be at the park board meeting this evening. And again, this is the first meeting since that announcement from the mayor. Uh, are, are you hoping that they will listen to, to former commissioners or, or how do you see things unfolding this evening? Well, I hope they do. Uh, I hope they listen to former commissioners who have the experience uh, and understand what it's like uh, to uh, 
to perform in a, in a well-functioning, uh, well-funded uh, board. I'm hopeful uh, that they will, and I'm encouraging you know all community groups to get out and voice their concern at tonight's Park Board meeting and also at Council meeting on Wednesday. What about one of the arguments, though, when it comes to red tape in that when setting up things, and I know the Moby bike system was an example that was used, that here's a company that needed not only park board approval, they then needed city council approval or the city's approval, that there's that the mayor says that this will get rid of some of that redundancy and make things like that easier. Well, I'd flip that around and say, if you've got a strong independent board, why would you need city approval? So in other words, give Give the board the give the board the unilateral decision to make those kinds of decisions and not you know get the city involved in in these kinds of decisions. So I would flip it around and and say uh, give it to the board to make that decision. Was it your experience when you were on the board that it was underfunded? Oh yeah, absolutely. And I think it's been the the history of uh, park boards over the years. When you look at uh, the percentage of revenue uh, collected uh, that's given to uh, Vancouver, it's, uh, very, it's lower than Toronto and other cities across the country. So I think if you get a, a well-funded park board and a well-governed uh, park board, uh, that can bring huge value to the residents of Vancouver. All right. Well, I know a lot of people will be paying attention to the meeting this evening and what happens next. Ian Robertson, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Thank you, Jill. That is Ian Robertson, a former Park Board Commissioner and one of many signatories on a letter that has been written, a news release as well, calling for the retention of the Vancouver Park Board. And many of those who signed the letter will also be at that meeting this evening. That's happening at 6.30 this evening, the first Park Board meeting since that announcement that it could soon be a thing of the past. Well, what are your thoughts on this? Let me know on the buzz line, 604 Buzz 604-331-2899. You can text that line if you would prefer to do that. And you can always email me, jill at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, as you've been hearing on the news, there could be a loosening of liquor regulations in the city of Vancouver. A report will be presented to Vancouver City Council this week with several recommendations to do just that, ending some red tape in some areas, streamlining liquor policy. And joining me now in studio to talk more about this is Vancouver City Councillor Mike Klassen. Good morning. Good morning, Jill. It, it might seem a little early to be talking about this, but it's something that certainly has been discussed at length. And just before we started this conversation, you had mentioned, too, uh, some archaic liquor laws that have been around for a long time. Well, uh, Vancouver has been known in the past for its sort of puritanical (laughs) approach to uh, liquor. And, you know, I think back to, gosh, when I was young uh, and you couldn't buy a beer in, in a, an establishment on a Sunday before Expo 86 came along. Right. So that was one of the sort of the milestones sort of fast forward to today. Uh, we have a number of rules in place that are, are legacy rules. Other municipalities have moved on, don't have things, uh, rules such as uh, distance requirements between venues. Uh, this uh, new uh, report by staff is bringing forward several recommendations that uh, I plan to support and I think 
others in council will. Uh, we'll probably ask a few questions, but generally this is really, I think, a positive direction. So when you say the distancing rules, what specifically could change there? Well, we like to use the example of what happened with the Fountainhead Pub on Davie Street. It's across from a nightclub, celebrities. Uh, uh, one is a pub, one is a nightclub. But because they were pro- uh, so close to each other, uh, the proprietor of the Fountainhead, who wanted to have more seats outside for his patio, was not allowed to have that. So an exemption was made, and it was seen as a good example, essentially a pilot, and it worked fine. So we, uh, I think this set of changes will make it so that those kinds of issues don't arise again. It also calls for uh, the removal of the moratorium on new liquor licenses, uh, in, in specifically in the Granville Entertainment District. So what will that look like, do you think? Is that going to become kind of a free-for-all? No, I don't think so. And and I think it's it's I think it's really important that there is some change there. I believe that, you know, the Vancouver, or the Granville uh, Entertainment District, for example, is going through a major public consultation. We want to re-energize that street. We want it to be a positive place, our place where we can go see shows and and uh, and socialize and and I think that uh, uh, for example the new Cineplex development which will have I think approximately fifteen hundred seats a place where you can be able to go watch movies it's going to be and have open sort of spaces that you can um, get together I think that the renovation and uh, establishment of that uh, new venue there is going to be an exciting change among others. When we talk about liquor laws though how many of these are or, I mean obviously you're dealing with the 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 city laws and the city mm-hmm. bylaws and rules, but it's also provincially regulated. Where do those two kind of meet? Or are there roadblocks in that some of the rules or a lot of the rules are also provincial? It's a really good question. So one of the things that we are doing is that we're uh, collapsing a lot of the control under. So in the past, we've had several different uh, checks and balances for proprietors that each one of them potentially can contradict each other. So now we are uh, under this uh, these changes, collapsing all of the city's re- requirements and responsibility under one person, the chief licensing uh, officer. So that person is going to make the final call when it comes to We also do have provincial uh, requirements and a provincial licensing officer. So I think that there will be some effort to work with the province to see if we can kind of consolidate that jurisdiction. But again, those are conversations that the city will have directly with uh, the provincial liquor requirements. Right. So, but when we talk about something then, removing the moratorium on new liquor licenses in the Granville District, wouldn't those be liquor licenses that businesses are getting from the province? Uh, they are they are definitely provincial liquor licenses, but we have uh, controls over numerous neighborhoods, including uh, Gastown and Chinatown and the downtown east side. They're all mm-hmm. kind of collapsed together and the Granville Entertainment District. But I think what this will do is it will uh, eventually allow uh, innovation in, in the industry. And I think that that's the thing that we're looking for now is really to support small business. Uh, People who are providing these services have uh, been kind of stuck and not being able to change and that is a very costly business. So the fact that we're uh, raising the uh, number of eligible seats in smaller venues, I think this is a positive thing. It makes it more economically viable. And then there's just other innovations there. The idea that we can start to have um, uh, what are sort of non-traditional places, uh, barbershops, bookstores, um, spas, where you can actually have, uh, you know, like a beverage with uh, whatever service that goes along with it. And so, and then also we're also talking about our sort of neighborhood village 
is trying to move it a little bit outside of the downtown core. So some of our uh, sort of town centers around Vancouver can also have uh, great establishments. How will that work when you talk about kind of the non-traditional places, spas, bookstores, uh, hair salons? Is that also provincial, though? Would those businesses have to apply to the province or they would be able to start start offering alcoholic beverages? Again, this is something that they'd have to probably go through both agencies. But at the same time, um, the, the fact that we are allowed to permitting it through our bylaws will make it a, a much more smooth process. What kind of a timeline do you think we're looking at here if this all gets approved at council? Uh, if this gets approved on Wednesday, it'll probably come back in, in a number of bylaw amendments uh, through public hearings. Um, uh, definitely in the coming weeks and into the new year. And I would imagine that uh, operators can start applying for these in the spring. All right. So uh, in the spring, we could see some of those uh, changes, big changes coming to liquor rules in the, in the city. Uh, Mike, I want to ask you, uh, you are here. I wanted to ask you uh, as well about the park board, because a lot of former commissioners and chairs are going to be going to tonight's meeting, first meeting since the mayor announced uh, he's asking the province uh, for the, the pr- approval to get rid of the park board. What are your thoughts on that? Well, I support what the mayor is bringing forward. I, I, I've seen in my own experience, certainly in the last decade or so, we've seen that uh, that that lack of uh, optimization, the, the fact that we could have uh, one entity, the city, working just like other municipalities and cities all across North America. We could have uh, a, a more combined system that will allow us to improve and then make those investments uh, right into parks that we needed. I think that we all agree that we've not seen our parks have not been as best as they can be. And this definitely, I think, will give us an opportunity to, to put that energy and resources into making our parks better. Did you see it deteriorate, though, or, or change in that? Didn't you used to be a proponent of the park board? I did, but, you know, that was a bit of a different context. Uh, I was uh, running with a group that was uh, in support of it, but my comments were really about the fact that at the time, the Vision Council was slashing the budget and making it very difficult. And so my comment was gen- generally that, if you're going to take away all that responsibility, then you might as well uh, move it into the city. But I think in, in the time since, I've seen the fact that we're not um, not doing as well as we can be. And I believe that uh, this is a, the, the need for an actual elected park board is not something I, I, I think that the public is really interested in. I think that they're really interested in making sure that we have really great parks. What have you heard from people? What has the feedback been like since the announcement? I'm certainly hearing it all, but uh, the overwhelming response has been this is a good uh, good move. And, and um, so I'm glad to hear that because I think in, in all of our uh, uh, sort of talking to the community is that they want to see improvements in parks and, and see those services being done by one entity uh, really well instead of having to have sort of different jurisdictions. I think the, you know, I use the example sometimes of last uh, winter when we had a great big snowfall and they were trying to clean the seawall because people like to go down there and walk and run. And um, it, it, one side of the Burrard Bridge is park jurisdiction, and the other side of the Burrard Bridge into False Creek is the city jurisdiction. And, and it made no sense to me that uh, you know a, a cleaning vehicle had to stop there because it wasn't in the same jurisdiction. That, to me, is a, one small reason that we can sort of change, make sure that the services are all aligned. Do you think it's the right way to do it? I know a few people have emailed and mentioned saying, but it is an elected board. Maybe there should be a referendum or there should be more of a gauging public opinion before making such a big decision. I, I'm firmly supportive of what the mayor is, is bringing forward. And I think that, again, uh, it will uh, be up to the voters in 2026 to decide. But at the end of the day, I think the overwhelming majority of comments that we're hearing from the public is that they support this change.
All right. Thanks so much for coming in this morning. You bet. Thanks, Jill. That is Vancouver City Councillor Mike Klassen, again talking about changes coming to liquor rules in the City of Vancouver and uh, the Park Board meeting tonight. First meeting since the announcement from the Mayor looking to abolish the board.